and welcome to Bab Pod Die, a Babylon Project miniseries about the comic book Die, where we tumble through feelings about RPGs and some terrible British nerds. I'll be your game master, Justin, and joining me are my two players, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? It's been a week at work. <laughs> you don't know how close I was to, since you looked at me. <laughs> yeah. That would have been an improvement over the week I've had. Uh, I had one of those weeks where, like, look, nothing I did was what went wrong, but everything went wrong. And so I've spent the last week, like, just cleaning up messes, which is for sure my favorite thing to do. And I just basically spent the last day of my vacation uh, marathon cleaning. So that went great for me. Living it up over here. Uh, What about you? I assume you uh, did something cool and thrilling. Yeah, this past weekend I went to Big Bad Con, which is an independent RPG convention that is held here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, which is very nice. I got to see a lot of people who are usually just screen names on my computer, including friend of the show Amar Amaraz, uh, who is a complete discography guest in the past. Mm. And yeah, I got to got to see a bunch of people. Got to play. Uh, I got to play some games. I one of my favorite things about going to RPG conventions is playtesting games that Mm -hmm. um, like I played a game called Street Gods, which is it was a it's it's an interesting game. It was like you're playing like demigods in a modern setting, but the the genre and core activity game is a side scrolling beat em up (laughs) in RPG form. That's hilarious. Which was very fun. Um, yeah, like you, you, like it was fun. You like you got a, like like little cards for like your basic actions, which was fun, and it was very fast, hard hitting, and oh, like oh yeah, this is. It was like there were there were multiple times with like we don't know we don't have a rule for this, so we're gonna make it up right there. And if that is not the purest form of playing RPGs, I don't have a rule for this, so I'm just gonna make it up right here. Yeah. There is I, I don't want to know what playing RPGs is if that's not it. <laughs> I've I'm trying to think. I have play tested a bunch of cool stuff because I went to a catacon a couple of times and uh Gen Con a bunch of times. I played Heart two years before it came out at Gen Con with uh Grant Game Daddy Howitt, uh <laughs> who refused to who decided he did not want to be called the game master, he preferred to be called Game Daddy. And then uh, my personal favorite game to play at, at any convention. Oh God, it's Rich's Rich and Richard's game. Descent to Midnight. Thank you. Uh, is Descent yeah. to Midnight, which is one of those games that there's nothing particular. There's nothing about it that is on the face different that that hasn't been done. But it is such a well designed game. It, like it's got it's just nicely designed and run. The people that run it are so smart that are, are are making it are so smart that every session of it I've ever played has been an individually terrific experience. Yeah, I, I played it once at Gen Con, um, and that was fantastic. Uh with uh Taylor GM'd it. And it was it was a lot of fun and a lot of feels. Yeah. Tonight we are covering issues five and six of Die, uh Premise Rejection and The Grind. Um, these are all written by Kieran Gillen, art by Stephanie Hans, and letters by Clayton Cowell. Um, I don't think we'll ever change this, but I just always liked, you know. <laughs> yeah. Credit where credit's due. 
And they all deserve enormous credit in each of these episodes for all of those things. So it's worth saying. Oh, yeah. And we've only and we've only got like somewhere in the vicinity of 10 of these recordings versus like three seasons of (laughs) written by JMS. Right. (laughs) Written by J. Michael Shazinski, directed by like it's written by JMS, directed by Y. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, listen. Did I have a copy? Did I have a notepad with a copy paste of J. Michael Straczynski in? Just because I mm-hmm. could never trust myself to to spell his name correctly. Yes, <laughs> JMS. If you ever listen to this, you are not the only person I copy paste that a name for. <laughs> so, um, issue five is premise rejection, which is a very fun term that I love in RPGs. I won't get into that in a little bit. But our quote for this one is. Uh, from C.S. Lewis is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm very sorry, Mr. Tumnus, said Lucy, but please let me go home. We start with a flashback to a few years before the group's first incursion into Die, where we learn that Sol is very bad with letting people take apart things that he's built and, air quotes, finished. In Glasstown in the present, Ash puts the dictator mojo on the chamberlain into the city and, like, really gives off some, like, Dom vibes in the scene. I, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> hold on. I'm being beaten with the horny stick here. Um, <laughs> it starts to question him about the city's defenses. They have the population of Glasstown gather in the Temple of the Mortar. Well, Angela teleports into an internal Prussian uh, stronghold and tricks them into starting an attack on Glasstown. The group then ventures into the catacombs of Glasstown to destroy the magical uh, core of the city to make it vulnerable. It is protected by constructs who Matt is able to dispatch with some requested voice sadness from Ash. A funny note is that several of these constructs have the face of one of Ash's bullies from high uh, or from whatever they call it, secondary school or as the dome uh, protecting the city shatters, Isabel shows a harvest god called the Skywatcher the perilous situation, and he helps the citizens escape, and Isabel is treated like a hero. Mm-hmm. Chuck goes out into the city to call out Sol, who is pissed off the players have destroyed his work. Sol freezes the attacking dragons and cuts off Ash's power, but they're able to subdue him with Angela and her dog. Sol stalls for time and ends up creating chaos. Ash kills him with a power she'd kept in her back pocket. Death touch. <laughs> I think you have to say like that, just like, because it's it, it's in a, like a funky font. Yep. Internally telling herself that he was dead a long time ago. With Sol gone, all the players are unanimous and could leave now. Right? Right? It's it's five issues. It's like, that's a trade paperback, right? You can go home. It's, <laughs> it's like, this is a series of stuff. <laughs> Well, when they link arms, Chuck doesn't want to leave. Isabel also expresses hesitation as they said they were going to treat this as real, and they have destroyed a city and created a humanitarian crisis. Um, <laughs> Chuck and Isabel depart through a Skywatcher portal, and as they leave, Angela's cyberdog case detects Fallen nearby. It's Saul. They learn that the Fallen are all the people who came to die who died and can only come back by killing players. They restrain Sol, and the remaining players decide. They're going to track down Chuck and Isabel, and they're going home by convincing them or killing them. (laughs) And as Sol reminds them, the word isn't die, it's murder. (laughs) Woof. Uh, This raises all kinds of questions, this episode, this issue. I'm glad. (laughs) Yeah. I have I have more and more questions about whether this is a world that like existed or that soul built. Like, well, yeah, because that's one one of the things I can't remember 
if if Ash first asks it in this issue or in the next issue, but Ash asks Soul about like why did, did you, you make it's in the next issue? How did you make this? How did you make die? And it's like home slice. There's a lot of fallen. Like we've seen yeah. a lot of fallen. So unless Saul has spent and weren't there a lot of fallen? Presumably there were enough fallen the last time they were here that they like learned about them and understood them, yeah. Yeah. which presumably would suggest that die has been there long enough for a bunch of players to die. I mean, and they've, and the, the fallen are described as basically being like orcs, like plentiful and, you know, have no compunctions about killing them. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> I, I, I mean, <laughs> do you want my orc speech? <laughs> Capital O, capital S. I mean, I've never actually, I don't think I've ever actually, I've heard it on podcasts before, but I don't think I've ever been like personally subject to it. I mean, orcs, I'm going to give it here actually, because I think this is a good place to do it. And I do think. Sure. So orcs are a super complicated topic for Tolkien. Um, And because he sort of originated the fantasy concept of orcs, I think it's important to understand where Tolkien's stood on them. And how that was often the nuance there was not often reflected in the people that picked up his um, picked up his tropes and why I really love this idea, because it does add nuance to the fallen here that uh, is often missing with a lot of orc representations. And I, uh, it's nice to see in tabletop RPGs, especially late in recent years, there's been a move away from like the orcs bad type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the traditional critique of Tolkien is that his orcs are soups racist. And they are in a lot of ways. There's a lot of description of orcs using racialist terminology. Part of the problem he had is he wanted to create bad guys. He wanted there to be bad guys to fight for the bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. But he he wrote himself into a corner because orcs have to exist at a time that predates men. Okay? Mm-hmm. Which means they can't be debased men. Yeah. Yeah. Which means they are either independent creations of Morgoth or they are debased elves. Which both of which present theological issues. If they're debased elves, it means that Morgoth has corrupted their entire line. He has taken an entire group of souls and corrupted them such that they don't get a choice as to what they will be, which is problematic for Tolkien, right? Mm -hmm. Because elves are fundamentally a union of a soul and a body. And like the idea that they don't get a choice as to what they will be is, is problematic. And he really didn't like the idea of his perfect unfallen people the elves being corrupted that way but it is very clearly established within his his theological framework that morgoth cannot create anything that talks Hmm. because talking is an indication of having a soul and that is the thing that he rebelled against primarily he does not control the fire the flame imperishable Hmm. Mm -hmm. that that gives life and and sentience 
he can make an orc dog that doesn't talk and is just an automaton, but he can't make a talking dog. So anytime you see anything talking in Middle Earth, it's because either it was created by God or Morgoth jammed an unwilling or possibly dubiously willing demigod into it. Hence, the orcs were problematic. So did, or, did Morgoth yeah. make them or are they corrupted elves? Anyway, I've gotten, I've gotten a little deeper into this than was probably necessary. But the point was, there was a lot more nuance to the orcs than a lot of people mm-hmm. saw. Because a lot of this was just Tolkien noodling around in his private notes. All they saw was orcs rampaging around in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. So when people yeah. went and took this trope of the orcs, they just took the surface value of it and mm-hmm. perpetuated a lot of the problematic surface value of, that he had used. Um, and it's nice to see that what Gillen has done here is gone back and, and found some of that nuance where there it's, it's there it's difficult. It's complicated where these things come from, what their origins are. Um, they're not just bad things that you can kill without remorse. Yeah. And like, and, and it's the thing that he introduces the bad thing you can kill without remorse. But as you learn more, it's, Oh no, these were once people. Yeah. yeah, which which is, I think, I mean, it's it's clever. It, it's yeah, breaches a whole bunch of questions about how the fuck did they get here? Yeah, well, yeah. to me, I just assumed I never assumed that Saul made die. That was never a thing yeah. that I like when Ash starts questioning that I was like, I never assumed he did. And, I was under the yet- assumption he just tapped into it somehow. And yet we have weird stuff like the like the you know guards for Glasstown's uh, core looking like Ash's bullies. Well, yeah, it's clear that once he took over for the 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 game master or whatever they call him, um, that he put his stamp on it. No, yeah. I mean I, I think this was th- these sorts of things were true in the first time that they were there too. Um, because like the elf queen is like based on somebody that they all had a crush on. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. There, there's, there's all these things that are picked. There's like a bunch of stuff that is picked from their real life. Like there's like, yeah, like the elf queen that we'll see in like issue seven, which we'll be recording later tonight, but that, that is based on a real person in their life. Um, and so it's, it's clear that like, when creating the original adventure, at least had some input on real for the real life. Yeah, it's complicated. I'm not sure what to make of it, and I'm I'm assuming we'll get some explanation at some point. Oh, yeah. But I'm very interested to see where where it goes because it we're getting two very clear indications that are contrary, contradictory. Yeah, mm-hmm. my my current like best guess is essentially that it's a world that exists on its own but is reskinned for the players essentially Mm. yeah that makes sense oh and that would explain why it starts out with like the automatons when Mm -hmm. people are playing with war games with minis and it's just like war games it's it's that and then justin's making no comment face um (laughs) and then as as time passes and as the con as as new new players evolve they bring their own baggage into the world. They bring nuance, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's talk about how uh, Dommy Ashes in uh, 
in this episode. How, in this hold issue. on, hold on. What, let me find the exact page here because it's uh, Ash says, "Don't tell anyone about this." Of course, I would be displeased. And the the Chamberlain says, "You've used your oh god, of course I I wouldn't I couldn't dream of such a thing, Mister Sash. I don't call me that. You haven't earned it yet." F in hell. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a lot. And and then then the bottom panel there where she's like holding him by his chin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which that that's also uh, yeah an image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like in contrasting with it is the the narration where Ash is like this like is internally realizing what she is doing, but is it's so easy. It's like breathing. It's like breathing fire. <laughs> oh. yeah Ash's yeah. internal narration is really interesting there's a degree like the there's a, a constant conflict between in Ash's narration where sometimes it reads like she's embracing who she is in this world and sometimes it's like the the who she was in the old world like looking in and tr- like judging yeah it's it's the it's the bleed of being in character. Yeah, yeah. And so. I feel like I feel like Ash is also more in character than any of the others too, in some ways. Yeah, you know, whether that's whether that's like an artifact of the physical transformation, the real world persona to the die persona, but mm-hmm. like, but Ash definitely feels like the most in character. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, Isabel, I think. Yeah, I think we're seeing the others get in get into character, but like, I kind of feel like Ash like from the first lands page there on the D twenty and it's just like, all right, I'm like, this is who I am now. Yeah. God damn it! Fuck shit. Yeah. I like how Angela just like sneaks into the um, the Prussian mainframe i don't have a good word for it like whatever that is and just like inserts a inserts a new light of code into them <laughs> yeah attack yeah. glass town equals true i yeah i'm eh. they're very interesting like eternal pressure is weird i i'm i'll be interested to see what more we do with that mm-hmm. yeah um yeah and the the bits of eternal pressure we see in um, in this also like helps confirm to me that like the the people who intercepted that ring were mm-hmm. were the Little Englanders, which oof yeah definitely makes that issue a lot more grim. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we also get to see a lo- a little bit of how uh, Saul like how Saul's. Uh, grandmaster powers work in like the flat in like the flashes yeah they get to break the rules or they get to set new rules yeah oh god that must have been so infuriating when they were like going through the first time because <laughs> it seems like it seems like so is the grandmaster now and presumably has more powers but like the first time around his powers must have been not dissimilar right yeah because he was now he's the grandmaster, but previously he was the the master, right? Yeah, that was the type the title slash archetype archetype that he chose for himself. 
and like god that just must have been like so infuriating for the other <laughs> for the other players party members I'm sure, like, if you're, like, an imaginative person, it's, like, it'd be great. But also, like, when somebody can, like, change the laws of physics at a dime, it's just, like, it's always going to be annoying when they can do that. Yeah, (laughs) It's fascinating to me when he reappears, the first thing he says is, I did this work for you, you ungrateful, like. Yeah. Is, does he, does he genuinely not get? what the situation is. I mean, he's been there for like over 20 years and he spent a lot of it in captivity. So I think he is like, (laughs) you think he's thoroughly lost touch with, with his, with, with, with reality. Yeah. He, I, I think he is, I think he is in full. I play world of Warcraft 60 hours a week mode. Yeah. And, and also like, the last time he interacted with reality, he was also what, like sixteen? Yeah. Um, so like anything that he has lingering from those times are from being a teenager. Yeah. Which also yikes. Yeah, it's just like the idea that he can't he he can't imagine that they would not be grateful, that that, that they would not have wanted this is wild to me. Saul's power is fascinating for me with like the juxtaposition with the the title for the mm-hmm. issue premise rejection um cuz the 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 reason i was saying that it would be like infuriating um is my like at least my vibe at this point is that like Saul was very much like the leader and kind of running things last time that last time like mm-hmm. there's a vibe of like everything here was like stuff that he had part of a game that he was running for them but it it puts me in mind of the GMs who, when faced with something that's not actually premise rejection, but creative thinking, um, just respond by essentially just changing the rules. Like like the like, no, you can't, you know, you can't fly into there because there's a big ceiling over it. I didn't say so before, but there's a big ceiling. And like that's that's the sort of thing that I can really envision Saul doing is like like here, it's like okay, this isn't playing out according to like what he has in his head. So like he's just going to change the rules and like, yeah, screw your creativity. We're doing this my way. That's the vibe that I get at least. He's a railroader. Yeah, yeah, and like I could see, I could see those particular powers of his being just utterly frustrating with him as a railroader. Yeah, I mean, it's like the Ash's internal narration that Saul was always a planner. We're off the rails. He's not comfortable with any of this, but that doesn't mean he can't improvise. Yeah, I also so. like that they can tell, they can gauge his his available resources by how many limits he puts on the dictates he makes. Yeah, like yeah. when when he limits at limits Ash's power to no dictatorship during daytime in Glasstown. Yeah. yeah, like he right, he uh, he doesn't have the the juice to just ban it entirely, so he has mm-hmm. to limit it like very carefully in order to, to be based on the resources he's got. I, it shows they know each they know each other really well. Mm-hmm. All these years later, yeah. they still remember. I think that's one thing that's really interesting is like it's been a long time since they've worked together. And they they all remember each other's abilities and how to work together 
very clearly. It really obviously made an impression. And they and they know each other's like little ticks. Mm-hmm. And like one of the one of the funniest things for me is like just because I'm like it's such a like 16-year-old move where like when uh so like does a little flashy magic or something. He says, fly my pretties. Please, one of you at least get the reference. <laughs> God, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. God, Saul's such a, he's such a wannabe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's probably been making pop culture references for years and nobody gets it because yeah. there's, yeah. there's no yeah. players he he is he Around. is I mean he's like the he's like Dark John Crichton uh, <laughs> from Farscape. Oh uh, yeah. Uh. Um, but instead of like fucking a whole bunch of aliens, he shoved d twenties into his eyeballs. Yeah, <laughs> I mean I guess like when you go into like this extreme of a situation, you you have you have two options. Bustin or no nut, and my man chose no nut, and he became we like he became weird about it. Yeah. Uh, also, the like it has to be said, uh, Stephanie Hodds's like art for the death touch is so cool. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, the idea that when Ash says I'm never unarmed, and then you realize what that means. Yeah, because there's a moment of like, oh shoot. Ash is unarmed because her voice is gone. Yeah, the mm-hmm. fancy voice, at least. I'm wondering if the death touch is it. It can't be one of her original powers. It has to be something different. Because if it was dictatorship, if it is, if if it it didn't come with, if it were part of her dictatorship class powers, she wouldn't be able to do it during the daytime in Glasstown. Mm. So it makes me wonder if it's something that she got she picked up along the way last time. Yeah. I I don't even honestly remember what like if we get a, like any more explanation on it. I'm I'm limiting my reread a little bit, but um Yeah. I was legitimately shocked that they killed Saul. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. was like the fuck you say? In issue 5. I mean, yeah, obviously I was not expecting him to wake up either. This whole the whole ending of this ep- of this issue, I keep calling them episodes. Uh the whole ending of this issue First, they kill Saul, and then uh, Dick Baggins McMan Bun decides he's going <laughs> to stick around. Um, I respect Isabel's reasoning. Yeah, they've yeah. just created a humanitarian crisis, and she feels soups guilty. I get it, but especially especially since she lied to the god that like got everybody there, and the god is like, "Oh my gosh, I owe you a debt." Yeah. Uh, and like she very clearly did not tell him that she caused the problem that oh, she is no. saving everybody from. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Cows don't need to know that info. Man bun here is basically just like this is more fun than going home, which is such yeah. a it is such Of course the white man is the one who says it. The it is such a fundamentally self-centered fucking bullshit thing to do to say your children, your family, everything else, all the rest of you have going on is less important than the fact that here I can have more fun and fuck more. 
Yeah, which is so yeah. funny because he's like the only person of the like the only one of them that is at that ha- I I don't know. Matt seems pretty okay. Um but like he's like the most well like he's the most well-off person. Yeah, yeah. Which, well, we we do find out a little later that he's not like happy. He's just well off. No, he isn't. But he's like he's the he's like he's well off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he's a he's a He's a privileged white man, which means he thinks yeah. he can just he, he he can just decide what he's going to do and damn the consequences. Yeah, uh, which is I think it, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if Isabel had spoken first there and been like, "Hey guys, like we just caused this major crisis, and like I know we all want to get back home, but like we need to take a few days more." Yeah. Maybe maybe a couple mm-hmm. of weeks and like make sure that these people get like food and water and go to someplace safe and then we can peace out. Yeah. They probably would have agreed with her. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that Chuck makes it about his fucking ego first means about immediate- doing pull ups and fucking elves. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything anything for the anything others for this one? Do we do we want to talk about premise rejection more broadly? Yeah. Um to so offer uh, a de- a textbook definition, I would say premise rejection is when a game master or facilitator offers a story or premise or setting that is not accepted by players, and this can this can happen in sort of like one of two ways: of we don't want to play this game, or we think this game is bullshit and we are not going to take it seriously and interact with the interact with the game in a good faith manner. Yeah. Um, and you know, speaking of con games, this is one of the things that I've seen the most at con games. I've been at a bunch of game tables where there were one or more players where I'm like, buddy, why are you even here? Um, like people who just like reject every single premise of like the system or the narrative that the GM is offering, etc. Yeah. Guys, gals, non-binary pals, the best way to avoid 90% of problems at your game table is to have a nice, honest conversation. A good session zero goes a <laughs> long way. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, like, and beyond session zero, even like, and, and like before, like before you even sit down at a table, before, while you're playing the game, you know, having good healthy conversation and as a game master as somebody who's run so many games you have no idea how many you have no idea um, how many (laughs) however many games you think justin is referring to it's more yeah um, and then double that (laughs) is i think like the most important thing is if players say i don't really like this idea and i and i'm not into it lose your ego just say okay that's cool um you know it's like it's like you can feel bummed because it's like oh hey like something that i have put time and effort and creative energy into is not is like not something that people want to play with at at this time or maybe this group doesn't want to play with but it's like can't take it personally (laughs) because then you become saul and you don't want to be saul (laughs) yeah yeah i mean fundamentally you're not there you're if you want to tell a story with no role playing tabletop gaming is a collaborative experience. Mm-hmm. 
If you just want to tell a story, write a book. I mean, yeah, it's 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 like it's like a comic. You have like multiple contributors who are creating the story. Honestly, um, hold on, I've got a gr- the. There's actually a great quote for this, which is actually our quote for issue six, <laughs> uh, which is the grind. And this is from uh, an article from IGN, an, an interview uh, with Warren Spector. Uh, I'm just going to read the full quote because it is the fu- I, it is it is possibly my favorite quote in all of games journalism. It's the funniest thing I've read in a while. There's a tendency among the press to attribute the creation of a game to a single person, says Warren Spector, creator of Thief and Deus Ex. <laughs> <laughs> it's the like wow (laughs) i i I do not know that like the the context of the quote and i would love to know the the is it like they had to have been done they had to have been taking the piss out of it like yeah it had to have been been done like intentionally as like a thing but like i i don't know sometimes things are that like yeah and like i could totally see ign being like that clueless yeah um, for for a little bit of context, Kieran Gillen is one of the co- was one of the co-founders of Rock Paper Shotgun, and worked as a games journalist for a long while before like transitioning to full time. Interesting, I did Fantas- not know that. Fascinating. Yeah, there there you can search online and you can find Kieran Gillen's like old archive of Rock Paper Shotgun articles. Fascinating. So on to issue six. Uh, we are in the ruins of Glastad because um shit got dragoned i like whatever dragons do and war machines do um you know that happened it's it's basically just the trenches all over again but now it's in a city yeah so so instead of instead of the western front it's stalingrad yeah we're in the ruins of Glashtown, where the group of Ash, Angela, and Matt are hiding with the restrained soul. They're trying to find a way out, but they need fair, uh, fair gold, which disappears every morning, to power enough gear to escape. They haven't ever found enough. The group questions Sol on how he built Die, but he refuses, like saying, I cannot answer that. Not I won't. Can't. Do you think... Well, we'll talk about it. Never mind. Sorry. Yeah. Continue. Ash tries to convince Angela that if they don't power Case, the cyber dog, they can escape, but Angela refuses. She teleports away in a little bit of a huff, and she tries to go find the fair to make a new deal. Uh, Angela talks to Case about her life, how she spent an entire decade, uh, like the entire 2000s, working in game development and never received a credit for a shipped game. Oof how she left her husband to try to make things work with a colleague and how it all went south. Um, She tells Case that she can't stand being alone right now. They go to the fair um, who offer her the, who offer her the air quotes, interesting choice um, of returning her arm, like the cyber arm or the dog. Can I ask a question? Um, Yeah. What is it that she's trying to renegotiate? I was not clear on that. She's trying to like negotiate, like I think maybe the usage of like she she's trying to basically like lessen her dependency on Faragold so she can have like more. Okay, but but they decide like turn in some of her powers in order to like got it. Yeah, and they decide that the 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 choice they want to offer her is she has to give up either her arm or her dog. Yeah. And 
it all comes down to a coin flip on whether they will accept it or not. And the fair, and it's called wrong, and the fair refused the deal. Uh, Angela, telling herself that she needs to get home as quickly as possible, says goodbye to Case and dismisses him. Um, with the reasoning that even when they went home, he'd go away anyways. She returns to the group and Matt offers to use his powers to help take her grief, which helps a little bit. Um, it takes them a few days to get the gold they need, but they are able to hack a dragon and go to the kingdom of Angria. They are then uh, greeted by Angria's welcoming party, a knight who calls Ash mom. <laughs> Which I guess <laughs> answers some questions about the nature of Ash. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that it does. Woof this this episode, though. I feel like I really feel for Angela as like as somebody who had a had like a creative career that they wanted to pursue and it didn't work out for reasons unrelated to like my ability in it. Yeah, this is a like this issue hits really hard home. <laughs> I think one thing that this issue really emphasizes to me is how damaged all of them are Mm -hmm. in really fundamental ways that have nothing to do necessarily with their time and die and, Mm -hmm. but that continues to haunt them here. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe the, maybe their, maybe her experiences and die the first time, led to what happened to her in game development. Mm-hmm. It's not clear there, but it's it's really clear that like she's kind of a shitty adult. Like she doesn't have her shit together. She's cut like in the sense that I speak as a shitty adult. Like, you know, her shit's not together. She's kind of a mess right now. And I I be I'm interested to see whether there's going to be a a an element of like this return to die helps her deal with that or whether it just continues to break her and all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that like, I mean, this is the first issue where we get, we get interiority taken away from Ash. Yeah. And given to other folks. Like we had, we had like a couple, we had, we've had like stories that people have told in the narrative of their life, but this is the first time we've really had an issue centered on someone else. Uh, we don't have like square bubble interiority. Yeah. We don't have internal thoughts, but we do have um, Angela's like narrating her life to Case. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't get like internal narration, but she but she does get to like she gets to be the main narrator of this yeah. story. Yeah, like, yeah. Which which um, is it's it's nice to see. As much as I enjoy Ash, it's nice to see. Um, there being exploration of the other characters. Yeah. Because yeah. we've had a lot of Ash in the first arc. Yeah. I, I think it's one of those things of setting the tone and then get, I think it's because this is the, I mean, this is the, what would have been, this is the start of volume two is like, you can branch out a little bit and yeah. mix up the formula that you've started. I think it's interesting that she, uh, Ash tells her like, well, you can always just summon case again when we get someplace else and we have more fair gold. And she's like, no, like I can't keep saying goodbye to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That grief is very, very like potent to her, even 
all these years later. Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, I, considering it's what drove her to be involved in the whole mess, I, it's. Yeah. I wonder how connected. I wonder how relevant that is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's got the the trauma. Like you know, it is it is a cause of trauma. So it's like you know, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and then we have speaking of trauma. Uh, then when we get to Angria, we discover that Ash is not just a dummy mommy, but somebody's <laughs> actual mommy. Yeah. Are there no details on that yet? Other than just like, guess what, guys? I'm your kid. <laughs> and Ash is <laughs> eternal narration. We can survive anything but our past. <laughs> yeah, that line makes it seem to me like she Ash isn't saying like, oh, fuck, what's this? It's more like my comeuppance have, have come to rest kind of a situation. It's like, this is why we didn't go to Angria originally. Right here. Yeah. <laughs> Right now, here it well, is. Well, well, if it isn't the consequences of your actions. <laughs> yeah. I know at the start, they they were like, well, we have to treat all of this like it's real. But Ash had a kid, apparently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, at what point, other than the fact that, like, the premise is bananas, at what point do you, like, Angela came back without an arm. Ash had a kid. Like, at what point does 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 that not feel real to you? I think there is a. I think that at least with some of the party, there is a there is a desire that it isn't real, even if the consequences are. Yeah. Huh. What does that? What What would that mean? What would that mean that it's it's not real, but the consequences are that they hallucinated it all and. That they were brought into a construct of a world that the construct isn't real. The things that happened it felt real, but it isn't real. Uh, this all happened in the Matrix. I see. Yeah. Trying to avoid the 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 moral consequences of their actions while they're there, basically. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it is. It's a it's a moral defense, not like, and maybe it's like a psychological one as well. Yeah. Got it. Because it, it very much seems like when. A lot of the time they're like, yes, we must treat this as real. But like when we get interiority and a lot of stuff, is, you can tell that they're all still like still hoping and dreaming that this is like they'll get the and it was all a dream at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's I mean, honestly, fucked up. That's uh, like this world is fucked up. And yeah, it I mean, there's a lot of it that's just it isn't fair and it doesn't make sense. And yeah. Who would live in a world that's not fair and doesn't make sense. (laughs) This is an, yeah, this is an interesting issue. It's, there's a lot less going on mm -hmm. like narratively in terms of like action things moving forward. It's really a much more of just a study of, uh, Angela. And then, I mean, the whole, the rest of the time, Matt and Ash are basically just hiding in a in a burned out building, poking Ash or poking Saul with a stick, pretty much. <laughs> hey, explain stuff. And there there is some really interesting Angela stuff in this. Um, the first being the response when the fair ask like arm or dog, um, and she like goes into this whole like multiple pain pain 
like spiel about like when you offered me the arm the first time, I didn't realize what would happen. But now I am more me without the arm than I am with the arm. But then she says, take the dog. Because she yeah. wants she wants him to, yeah. to stay after she leaves. Yeah. Something that in that scene that really just like I scream because it's the one of the most real like it's one of the most visceral things I've ever felt like with relation to games where after she she, she goes through this whole emotion to you know take the dog um, they flip a coin. And it's like zero, and it's one or zero. Zero. Your choice is not among the things that happen. Um, and Angela, like, is like, what is the point of interesting choices if they make no difference at all? Which is, ooh, <laughs> listen, there's a lot of uh, game. There's a lot of high profile RPGs that's that that want you to make important choices. And tell you that your choices matter. And then when you get to the third game out of the trilogy, uh, it hit I the game we're talking difference. about Mass Effect, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this is this is the thing. I'm I just think guessing. Is, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is. It's not like, just Mass Effect. Yeah, it's not just Mass Effect. I think there's like there's a lot of games that like do this where if a game does not like in it where where you are given a choice but that choice is really just going to be which like it's going to be like which npc gives you missions for the rest of the game yeah i i mean i think like for me personally one of the biggest ones of these is like skyrim say yeah where skyrim is created under the idea that you can do everything like you can basically do like everything in a single playthrough yeah. And because you never get like locked out of a quest or like if I become the if I become the greatest thief in Skyrim, there's nothing also to stop me from becoming the archmage or whatever. Right. And so the, there's no choices to be made in the game. There is just quest lines to complete to their end. Yeah. The like the only one where there's anything where you can get locked out is like some of the shit with the dragons. And yeah. even that is like negligible like you know, most of my Skyrim playthroughs, I have not engaged with the main plot in any way. Yeah, because it's like there's, I mean, like, you know, that's the that's the point that they've like, you know, it's the point that they made with those sort of games. And it's like, I, I've I've heard that I have not played Starfield, but the 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 reviews that I have read that said it is like Skyrim, but even more Skyrim than Skyrim, where it is just an open role for you to do stuff, and there's like. There's no real choices to make there. It's just you can do anything you want is I mean, I, I understand why those games are sought, but that's just not a game I want to play. <laughs> well, I think there's a difference between you can do anything you want if those things you choose to do are engaging and meaningful in and of themselves. And then there's you can do anything you want, but nothing you do has consequence. Cause like mm -hmm. what you're talking about is I can go into an RPG world and it doesn't matter what choices I make. Those choices have no consequence on the world. Whereas yeah. if you go into a game like a Starfield or a no man's or a no man's sky, 
you can make a million choices. I haven't played Starfield, but from what I've heard, it's it's a lot like No Man's Sky in that it's like you go out and you can build things and go places and do stuff. I think one of the principal differences between like a Skyrim and a, and a No Man's Sky is, or a, like a Minecraft or something like that is the the cho- it's it's about the the activities that you choose to do are the choices that you make as opposed to how you want to influence the world around you like the 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 the, the how you want to impact the narrative and it sounds like with with something like Skyrim there is no impacting the narrative you are pointless in the narrative despite the fact that you're the most important person in Skyrim yeah <laughs> well yeah same with like a good example of this is Destiny 2, where you are the most powerful guardian that's ever lived, but none of your choices matter because you can't meaningfully affect the outcome of any of these narrative plot lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there there ends up... I My main frustration with that... like. I'm fine with games where you like go in and build a thing. I'm fine with games where you yeah. go in and, you know, role play and, you know, uh, the game will remember this. Um, but Skyrim, I think Skyrim's a perfect example because it's one that always feels like false advertising to me, where like it sort of feels like it's sold as like, here's a role playing game where you can, you can shape this world and like, that's not how it goes. That's not true. You have a house that you can fill with junk. If that's yeah. not shaping a world, I don't know what is. I mean, it's 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 like the difference between like I mean, we, we should we should really like sort of tie this up in a bow. But it's the difference between um, playing Fallout Four and Fallout New Vegas. Yes. Yeah. Where Fallout Four is you're you know you you're going across like the entire like entirety of massachusetts and nothing ever feels like it is something you're interacting with or making anything meaningful but but like new vegas is a game where the first town you were in there is like 10 different ways to resolve the first problem that involve pissing off all like (laughs) three different groups of people depending on how you go and doing stuff that will affect like the rest of the game and that and that pattern continues throughout the game. Yeah, and it's like and like you, s- and you genuinely cannot do everything on one playthrough. Yeah, which is not even close. Yeah, and, and like there, there's four endings to the game, and you know, and and you can lock yourself out of them real easily. Yeah, uh, out of some of them. I, I think it is. Yeah, it, it's like and making the choice only matters if you get to feel if you get to like have a not a satisfying a cathartic emotional output yeah there has to be real consequence yeah Yeah. like that that cathartic emotional output can be you got a gun with bigger stats like i think that is like you know sometimes that is a i like i like cool loot and you know and and delving back to like older rpgs i was always perfectly happy with like the little title cards being like this person that you helped in like, you know, act one, like lives happily ever after on their farm that, you know, you help them save from like mold or whatever. Like, you know, the, I, I, even those, like, it doesn't have to be something big, like those title cards are like 
you're like, oh, hey, I, I made a difference. I saved their farm from that from that mold, and now they're living happily ever after all. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Um, I think. Do we have any other closing thoughts for this for this issue? Just that, just that I like want to keep an eye on some of like Angela's game design thoughts, where we're starting to get into stuff where we've got video game design thoughts in addition to tabletop um thoughts like where she's calling out that um the the barks yeah which is one of my favorite which is one of my favorite things um which is yeah. that um barks are like the the audio cues that like en- enemy npcs will give and my favorite like anecdote of this is that all you need to do to make to make people think that your game ai is better is to introduce barks the, they can operate the same, but so long as they shout what they're doing, people will think you have good AI. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. I feel like that's a very apt place to leave this particular episode. Yeah. Jude, do you got anything you want to uh, wrap up? Uh, I was just going to say that Saul is creepy. Oh, yeah. Like, no. his, his fallen form is super creepy looking. Yeah. That dude's never changing. All right. Um. So next time, we're going to be covering episodes... Er, on episodes you've got me doing it now too you motherfucker (laughs) um we're gonna be doing issues seven and eight uh wisdom chick and legacy heroes until next time uh just keep rolling the babylon project is an independent production all views expressed on the show are our own music information can be found in the show notes the rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license. End of recording.